that kind of payday, we're talking seven figure paydays. I mean, your listeners, well, you get that from things like ransomware, like attacks on a company, right? Business email compromise, where you compromise a business and you extract seven figures from a business. Here, they're extracting seven figures from individuals who do not have their own IT department. They do not have all of the resources that you um, and other people in the cybersecurity com uh, community are marshalling to defend companies against threat actors. I'm George Comedy, and this is First Watch. Today's guest is Cesare Podkumal, an investigative journalist for ProPublica. Have you ever gotten a random WhatsApp message? Usually it's from a strange number, and the message is purporting to be looking for someone else, or maybe claims that you're in their uh, contact list. Almost inevitably, the profile photo features an attractive man or woman. Well, recently, Cesare and ProPublica dropped a bombshell report on the role of organized crime syndicates and human trafficking behind cyber scam operations in Southeast Asia. The depth and breadth of these operations is devastating and heartbreaking. Even as someone who works in cybersecurity, I was astonished at the scale, and I wanted to learn more. I thought the community might also want to learn more about the human cost of these social engineering scams, and that the person on the other end of that scam message might be a victim too. Let's get into it. Cesare Pankul, welcome to First Watch. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I really want to dig into this piece you wrote for ProPublica on scams uh, as they relate to organized crime in Southeast Asia. Uh, as a, someone who works in cybersecurity and as somebody who has received unsolicited WhatsApp messages, I was still flabbergasted. Um, so I want to start with the fact that you have written about finance and you have written about cybercrime, you've written about uh, fake job scams. Um, so given that experience, uh, I'm curious to know what, if anything, surprised you most during the course of this particular investigation? Yeah, you're right. I think we've all been getting those messages at this point. And I think that was really one of the most surprising elements is to trace those messages and see where they're originating from. And the answer mm -hmm. was they're originating from these, for lack of a better term, scam sweatshops in Southeast Asia, uh, mainly in Cambodia, Laos and Myanmar, the, the three countries where, you know, over the last two years, uh, Chinese uh, cyber criminal groups have uh, set up shop in casinos that you know were emptied out during the pandemic um, mm -hmm. and buildings office space that was meant to house online gambling that was suddenly you know re repurposed for uh, scams uh, and scamming on a global scale. So that was really the first thing kind of tracing it there. And the second thing was just the scale of it. you know I mean it is just amazing how broad reaching this is. you know with most forms of human trafficking, um, it impacts the person who obviously gets trafficked and their their family, mm -hmm. right? And maybe their community, right? If you get sold into a brothel and you're made to work as a sex worker against your will or a laborer on a construction site somewhere or a, a, a commercial shrimping boat, you know, obviously it's going to hurt you and your family, but it doesn't really impact people in other parts of the world. This, because it's a unique form of human trafficking, uh, actually does impact uh, people in other parts of the world. You know, you might be sitting at home uh, in the U.S. somewhere, and you might get a message on Facebook from a friendly mm -hmm. stranger trying to get to know you. And if that message is, if that message catches you at the wrong time, 
you may end up getting sucked into one of these scams and lose, you know, in some cases I've talked to people who've lost millions of dollars. And so this unique combination of two crimes, cybercrime and human trafficking is really what makes this so new and so dangerous. And the global scale of it really cannot be overstated. Uh, uh, I've, uh, by doing my reporting, I realized that uh, there's victims uh, who've been identified in over 40 countries of these scams mm, from wow. uh, from these types of, yeah, uh, so really all over the world, you know, from scams emanating from these Southeast Asia scam factories. So this is a big, huge global threat. Yeah, I think the media thinks of cybercrime uh, as ransomware gangs, so self-organized, albeit anonymous uh, adversary groups, um, enamored with nation-state attacks and intelligence units um, acting as proxies for nation states. And I think there has been a lot of hypothesis that organized crime, everything from the Italian mafia uh, to other groups have some hand in this. But at least in my experience, this was the first time that there was such a clear linkage between organized crime units that have other business operations, probably drug trafficking and the like, um, and then taking up cybercrime as another revenue stream. It was astonishing, the scale, but not only in the victimhood, it was also the depth of it. This idea that there's this entire gray economy that supports it. I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me the most, and I posted about it, was that the gangs can purchase you know, profile information like fake photos or hacked photos of influencers, like they don't even have to build a lot of the infrastructure. I mean, they have the, the hardware and they have the space, but there are other vendors that are ancillary to this, this organization. Um, so I guess you talked about uh, crimes affecting people in 40 countries, and we've talked about this scale. Do we have a sense of proportion? Like what percentage of these types of scams that Southeast Asia is constituting? Is, is this the most organized? Is it more mom and pop operations? Like, do we have any sense of the, the global scale of the problem? Yeah, so that, that uh, it's difficult to quantify because we're still, frankly, in the early days of this. Mm -hmm. This is really a unique phenomenon that's only sort of popped up over the last 18 months to two years really during the pandemic. And so we don't quite have a sense of, um, you know, what proportion of global cybercrime may be coming from these Southeast Asian uh, scam factories. But I can tell you that they definitely are highly organized and there is an entire industry around this. That's one of the most shocking elements of this. As you mentioned, and as we detailed in our story, there are profile shops that cater specifically to pig butchering scams, one of the mm -hmm. most common scams that's emanating from these scam factories. And that, and it, you know, it's not a feat of investigative journalism to discover that's who they're catering to. It literally says on their website, this profile for pig butchering scams. Here's a guy, you know, and here's 197 pictures of the guy, you know, and they show you, you know, pictures of these beautiful people that you can buy so cheap. I mean, one of these profile shops, it's less than a, a cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I mean, this stuff mm -hmm. is really not that expensive. In, in other situations, they may actually ask the, uh, the human trafficking recruits, uh, the, I shouldn't call them recruits, really, they're, they're forced against their will to do this and brought there. The people that they buy um, to work inside these scam operations, they may tell them to go build these profiles themselves. So when I was investigating mm -hmm. where are these photos coming from, I traced one of the scammers' images to Instagram posts of a, a Chinese uh, uh, influencer 
and you know just beautiful photos of him doing all sorts of cool stuff to show off his mm-hmm. cool lifestyle and then those images that are then used on whatsapp to uh to bait people in the us and say i'm this cool guy you know i let me teach you investing and it goes from there so there's an entire industry it really it is an illicit industry uh, that's operating now in southeast asia that's operating a global scale and targeting people all around the world yeah the um i think that you bring up a good point i think w- it's hard to hold the reality of the comprehensive nature of these scams. I think people get a fake text message and and most people either block or delete and they think, you know, that's sort of the end of it. But you detail in the report how somebody was compromised essentially because they have this wealth of photography. So they can show off like, I just bought this place in New York. I'm spending the weekend in the Hamptons, which is all part of the larger social engineering proof. And it struck me that there are also two layers of social engineering going on, right? There is the wide net that they cast to lure um, poor, essentially rural uh, workers, farm workers with the promise of a better job, a better lifestyle. Um, And that's a wide net. And then there is honing in on these high value targets. Like this is the person you, this is the pig that you're in charge of fattening. so I want to start with the the latter, uh, which is the high value targets. Can you walk us through a little bit how that reconnaissance is being done? Sure. So one of the things I did in the course of my reporting is I looked over some training materials that were provided to that are provided to people mm. inside of these scam factories. That's one of the unique elements of this. Is if you want people, if you recruit these, you know, if you no, sorry, I keep saying recruit. If you buy these people to run these scams and you force them against their will to build fake profiles, to initiate conversations on WhatsApp, you have to give them some sort of training, right? You have to tell them like, here's what I want you to do. So there's all kinds of training materials that are actually given to them and people smuggle these out, um, you know, and uh, I was able to get some of them from either people directly who were rescued from these operations and managed to get some of them out and others that were just collected um, by rescuers. And then also, you know, Telegram is just a place where you can find a lot of this stuff yep. too. Obviously, yep. we had to vet it very carefully to make sure it was real. But the materials that I was looking at did very much sound and look authentic based on the scripts that I saw that were being used on scam targets in the U.S. And one of the things that you see in these training materials is um, you see them telling people to kind of get to know their customer, know, know, do what's mm. called customer segmentation, is your figure out, are they rich? Do they have disposable income? How much money do they have? And one guy that I looked at that was spelling out this customer segmentation basically said, don't waste your time on anyone who makes less than 3000 USD per month, right? Mm-hmm. These are the people we're targeting. You know, you want them to actually have some disposable income, figure out, are they willing to invest? The slang that you see being used inside of these scam factories is to cut someone. So mm-hmm. can they be cut? Meaning, can they be scammed? If I'm scamming you, I'm cutting you. And you might take multiple attempts at that. You might take a first cut, a second cut, a third cut. And if the person still uh, refuses to be cut, then one guy that I looked at, you know, called them, quote, garbage customers, you know, then you know, they're garbage right. customers move on. And so one way to defend yourself against this, obviously, is be a garbage customer, right? Don't, don't, yeah. don't, uh, don't let them cut you. So that's one thing that you see in these guides. The other thing um, that you see is just they're very psychologically astute. You know, mm-hmm. they include everything from how to keep a conversation going, uh, topics of conversation, how not to be too obvious, right? When you're making a very smooth 
transition to talking about investing, you don't want to come off as just, you know, you, I start a conversation with you and, hey, George, how are you doing? We do invest in this crypto coin. That's not the way they want you right. to do it. They want you to make right. a very smooth transition after the target has learned to trust you. So it's very psychologically astute. Uh, and that's part of the reason why these scams, frankly, are so devastating. Yeah, I, I forgot the training manuals, that level of um, infrastructure that the organization take took to time to build was also astonishing. Yeah. Um, in you point out uh, the way they groom people. The article does a, a has a devastating portrayal of somebody who revealed in a moment of vulnerability. Right, I'm I'm in the hospital. You know, my my dad's undergoing treatment, and then they hook into that vulnerability right away, and the, and that comes up later when they're talking about investing because it would help you pay for services or help you support your family. It's it's very wicked in terms of how it preys on those vulnerabilities. That's um, exactly right, and and that, that that's an important point because. Uh, it raises an issue that I saw coming up over and over again when I was looking at uh, the chat transcripts that people shared with me so I could understand these scams better. And one of the things that clearly comes across from this is that if you do actually engage with these scammers, right, if you're doing it for anything other than pure entertainment value, right, uh, if you actually do talk with them and share information, you have to keep in mind that anything you say can and will be used against you, Okay. Like any personal detail you share with them, they will use it later on to try to socially engineer you or manipulate you into depositing this money. So in the case of the person we profiled, this U.S. scam victim that we profiled in our story, you know, this California man who lost a million dollars to the scam, you know, he was a uh, you might think he's a very unlikely target because he's a lifelong saver, conservative investor, doesn't like taking risks. When the scammer first tried talking to tried to talk him into investing you know, really, I shouldn't say investing because it's not an investment. Right. Depositing, right. depositing, it's anything but an investment, trust me. Depositing funds into this fake brokerage, he was petrified of putting even $2,000 into it. Mm -hmm. So how does a man like that go from being scared to the deposit even $2,000 to then in a span of like six weeks, burning through a million dollars of wealth uh, of his family's savings? How does that happen? It happens through very astute social engineering that uh, tries to capitalize on things that they shared. And they, he did share in the early days of conversation with the scammer that he had a father who was dying and it was uh, up to him to take care of him and figure out um, if they were going to keep him on life support. He was under tremendous stress and the scammer pounced on that mm -hmm. and convinced him, hey, look, you should really deposit money in this uh, brokerage because it'll mean more money for you and your family and more money to take care of your father and keep him in the hospice, right? So it was, it, that's how they did it. And, and I just cannot underscore how psychologically astute these scammers are and how they really try to exploit anything and everything that you tell them. Yeah, I want to underscore two things. The the first being, not only was he a conservative investor, but he had it in the most conservative vehicles, CDs, mutual funds, and exactly. somehow convinced him to bend over backwards, convert it into cryptocurrency. You know, like, it's, it's yeah. not just the, the act of depositing the money. I mean, he had to learn an entire new way of converting currency just to be sucked in. The other thing Absolutely. that I want to... Yeah, the other thing I want to underscore for the listeners especially is, you know, we talk about cybercrime, we think about hacks against companies, some of whom are covered by insurance, but the vast majority, especially of the 
um, social engineering reports to the FBI, which I think have tripled between uh, 2019 and, and 2021, are, are individuals. They will never get that money back. There's no mechanism. There's not like the Treasury is going after the 60 grand that you know got lost in some Macau uh, d- you know deposit institution. They, they can't. There's just no mechanism to recover that. So it's it's truly devastating uh, to individuals. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes this so interesting, too, um, you know, from conversations that I had uh, with um, people in law enforcement and also who are following this. One of the interesting things that they flagged is, you know, the paydays are really huge with this. And mm-hmm. that's one of the things that also shocked me with other types of cybercrime, like when I was writing about identity theft. You know, you had situations where your identity gets stolen. Someone might uh, get into your Netflix account. It doesn't really cause you that much damage. Or they might purchase something in your name uh, with your credit card. Um, and you can get that. Maybe you can get that charge reversed. But it's a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars. George, I was routinely interviewing people who lost money in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and several people in the millions of dollars, like it's several millions. Staggering. That kind of payday, we're talking seven-figure paydays. I mean, your listeners, you get that from things like ransomware, like attacks Mm -hmm. on a company, right? Business email compromise, where you compromise a business and you extract seven figures from a business. Here, they're extracting seven figures from individuals who do not have their own IT department. They do not have all of the resources that you um, and other people in the cybersecurity uh, community are marshalling to defend companies against threat Mm -hmm. actors. So this is the really dangerous thing here. Um, they're seeking out people who have that disposable income. They're hitting them with all of this social engineering. And it's a numbers game too, right? At the end of the day, because think about it, it, it you know, it, the, the way I like to think, you know, it, the way I like to think about it is it's the law of big numbers, right? Yeah. You message enough people, you message enough people, someone will respond inevitably, right? Uh, you do that all day long and you have human trafficking recruits. You give them 10 phones each. You have maybe a hundred of them in the same comp, right? It adds up very quickly. It's easy to scale yeah. up and sooner or later, someone will respond. And those are the people that get exploited. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to return back to social engineering, but look at the wide net that's being cast. And towards the end of the article, you mentioned that, you know, under inquiry and some pressure, the embassies are beginning to, you know, message to their populations, beware of job ads that are promising this, that or the other, even jobs in specific countries. Do we have a sense that that awareness is increasing to the point where, you know, they may be able to interrupt the labor pipeline and the trafficking element of the equation? It is definitely increasing. What we're seeing, so I'm based in Hong Kong, and I can tell you that this has become a big news story now, uh, not just in Hong Kong, but in our region more broadly. You see a lot more media covering it, uh, and you see a lot more PSAs coming, not just from the embassies, but also from law enforcement. Uh, Here in Hong Kong, uh, at the airport, uh, police are now warning people about overseas job investment scams. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Taiwan. So people are being warned sometimes when they arrive at the airport to fly out for one of these jobs. And so I think that is definitely going to have an impact and at least slow things down. But there's still a pipeline um, of people who are being tricked into these jobs because, um, you know, COVID disrupted the global economy in an unprecedented way. You know, people around, millions of people around the world lost their jobs um, and they started looking for better and different ways to to make money, right? And so uh, there's still a lot of people who are 
um, suffering and who are looking for a better livelihood. And these job ads are coming out there and they're promising, you know, great working conditions, um, easy money, you know, lots of money. And they sound great to people who may be earning, you know, maybe a fifth or less of what's being promised. You know, like the person we profiled in our story who ended up being tricked with one of these fake job ads, uh, it promised $1,000 a month to begin with. Uh, and it was going to be payable in U.S. dollars. And so that enough, you know, he was from a, a rural province in China. This was, this was a good deal for him. You know, he said, let, let, you know, he decided to do it, right? And same thing for people who are seeing the same kind of job ads in Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, they're falling for them because uh, they, first of all, they can seem very legitimate. You know, they, they don't look that suspicious. And sometimes the salaries aren't too outlandish. You know, previously when I wrote about fake job ads uh, targeting people for identity theft, in the U.S., one of the telltale signs was that salaries were like really outlandish, right? Right. And here it's not, you know. And sometimes you do see those here, the, the job ads that are luring people into human trafficking, uh, you know, these scam compounds. You do see, you know, things that are too good to be true. But often they're just they're just lucrative. They're just it's a good pay. The, the conditions seem seem good. And sometimes when they respond, they'll get an offer on an official letterhead that looks from a real company. They'll use a real business name, right? And so I talked to a couple of people who were tricked this way. They got an offer letter. It looked legitimate. Everything seemed to line up. They even got an offer, hey, we'll fly you out there. And you know, they reported for duty. And next thing you know, they're, they're trapped. Um, and uh, the pipeline you know, is, really is still there. I mean, when I was in Cambodia a few months ago reporting the story, the, the person that I was interviewing um, that, that, we, um, that we ended up profiling in the story, you know, I just finished talking to him. And that very same day, Another person that I ended up talking to later was literally arriving at Pompan Airport uh, reporting for duty. And within hours, he was taken to you know, wow. a, a scam compound. So as I'm talking to one person who just escaped, another person is literally just flying in like, a you know, really. So that just shows you the pipeline is still there. I do think that the actions that are being taken by the embassies, the countries, the law enforcement, the governments are going to raise awareness. But for now, there's still you know, a certain segment of people who may not be aware and they will take that risk and travel for those lucrative overseas jobs. I, I do want to turn our attention to government. As you mentioned, a lot of these sweatshops are located in enormous buildings. These are not like underground speakeasies or whatever. It's yeah. not like a cocaine den in Colombia under the jungle floor. I mean, these are huge visible buildings and compounds. And so I think you touch on the fact that there must be some kind of tacit level of corruption because someone has leased it, somebody owns the building, there's something to be gained. Um, I'm curious to know how much of a factor do you think that's playing in and if that's a pressure point that can be applied to mitigate it? Yeah, there's been reporting uh, from us as well as other outlets, uh, including VOD News uh, in Cambodia, that has unearthed some of these connections between um, these uh, the companies that own the real estate, you know, where these uh, compounds are located. And sometimes they tie back to the country's business elites and sometimes even some you know, political government leaders. So that is that link is there. And, and of course, that raises all kinds of you know, legitimate questions about um, to what extent is there real political will to crack down on these uh, compounds. Uh, I will say as an update, uh, since we published this story, the Cambodian uh, authorities have finally started doing uh, large scale, you know, they call them inspections, sweeps to basically try to crack down uh, and empty some of these buildings. Um, they've arrested, they've made some arrests. They've um, finally seem to be doing more to shut this down. But for months and more months before, uh, before our story ran and, you know, as I was doing the reporting, 
really they were just issuing kind of denial saying, right. you know, it's not that big of a problem. We don't know what you're talking about. It was kind of in that in that realm of sort of, you know, trying to downplay the significance of it. I think what changed was, you know, the weight of the evidence was just undeniable, you know, where you couldn't deny that these are just labor disputes, you know, between people and, you know, this this person came here for a job and, you know, they got a legitimate labor dispute. They got to work it out. Right. Um, you know, some of the became, tactics, were, some of the tactics were laughable, right? They would just get people to read a statement like, no, I borrowed this money from this company and I am repaying. I mean, it's like a hostage video. Like, it's like, how, how yeah. is any, how is that credible yeah. in any way, shape or form? Yeah. So the person, yeah, the person that we profiled in our story, yeah, he was, um, you know, uh, he and his brother, as we mentioned in our report, he and his brother were taken, um, into one of these scam operations and when they wanted to get out. Um, they, you know, the company made them read a statement saying, oh, we actually, you know, we owe this money and we apologize for seeking rescue. We, you know, there's nothing to see here. So, you know, that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of evidence that these scam operations will use to try to, you know, clear their name if police say, hey, what, what are you doing holding, holding this person against their will? Well, hold on, look at this video. He just said that, you know, he, you know, he borrowed money from us. So there's, you know, there's proof that, you know, was legitimate. So that's, that's the kind of, you know, uh, tactics that you see some of these outfits using. Yeah, and I imagine as this concentrates on Southeast Asia and the targets were, I think you mentioned, you know, Canada, US, uh, Australia, English speaking countries, um, there's got to be more loci of this particular activity, right? You could target Germans, you could target Saudis, you could, you know, so I imagine it's not just a Southeast Asia, you know, English language um, issue. But lastly, I want to close out with, you know, what advice would you give to our listeners as end users? You know, is there any action that they should take short of, you know, block and report? I mean, is there any way to engage? I, you know, I don't know if it's futile to engage meaningfully with a scammer because they have somebody looking over their shoulder, but I don't know. I'm people are aware now and, and I want to give them, I guess, some sort of action that they might feel like that they can do. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the things that I think people sometimes forget is that when it comes to financial crimes, especially, you know, cyber crimes originating on the internet, targeting you and me to deposit our savings into, you know, these fraudulent websites, you are the first responder when it comes to financial cybercrime. Okay. It's not the Secret Service, it's not the FBI, it's not the police. And of course, it's good for you to report the crimes to uh, local law enforcement and to, uh, and to FBI and Secret Service so that they can investigate and try to help you and help other victims. But at the end of the day, the actions that you take in the days and frankly hours after you realize you've been scammed are crucial. And they will help determine how easy or how difficult it is going to be for law enforcement and for your financial institution to try to do anything to help you, right? Mm -hmm. um, for example, one of the scam victims that I interviewed was able to get a $90,000 payment reversed by her bank. And the only reason that happened was because she told them very soon after it happened, after she had uh, okayed the payment, they were able to reverse it because she caught it, she, because she alerted them right away. But all the other money that she wasn't aware that she had already given to the scammers, you know, that they couldn't reverse. You know, that she had to rely, you know, that that's where being able to report it early and to be able to trace it, um, you know, uh, enables then law enforcement um, and other, you know, cryptocurrency uh, investigators to try to figure out where the money went and potentially try to uh, help law enforcement freeze those assets 
and to uh, and to try to get them back to you through a seizure. So uh, the sooner you report, the better. And just remember, you know, when it comes to cybercrime, you know, the, the the first line of defense, the first responder is you, and what you do matters tremendously. Uh, and obviously, if you see those messages on your phone from a friendly stranger, you know, just you know, who says, "Oh, I just got the wrong number. Let's talk." Um, you know, just be very wary of responding to them. Absolutely. Well, Cesare, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you very much. It's very valuable reporting. I want to thank you for the time. I know it's evening over there. Um, but yes, I look forward to seeing any follow-up stories. And uh, thank you again. Thanks for having me. That's it for First Watch today. Many thanks to my guest, Cesare Podco. To hear more interviews with leaders, journalists, and spotlight episodes on newcomers to cybersecurity, subscribe to First Watch wherever you get your podcasts. First Watch is a production of Safeguard Cyber with original music by Matias Safaletti and production help from Jamil Mafi. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong.